Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with a wide range of incredible people who dedicate their lives to researching, documenting and protecting the natural world. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the Coffee Connection and plenty of other interesting content on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. Today we're featuring Blackfin Coffee, a US-based company that works out of Seattle on the West Coast. Listen to the end to find out who they are and why we should be supporting them. In this first episode of Season 3, I talk to Selena Chen. Selena is an intersectional conservationist, ecologist, photojournalist, ambassador for Girls Who Click, and a member of the Youth Council for Reserver, the Youth Land Trust. We spoke about the illegal wildlife trade, the importance of truthful science communication, her work with Reserver, the Youth Land Trust, and the lack of diversity in wildlife filmmaking and photojournalism. We also finished off the episode talking about two incredible books, so stay tuned for more book-related content on my Instagram and Kofi page soon. Hi, Selena. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's actually really nice to have you for a huge range of reasons, but also, especially just under a year ago, I was at work, which is a strange feeling. Like I was working in the office with other human beings, uh, but I was also listening to you being interviewed on a podcast. And that was one of the kind of, that podcast was one of the kind of, I guess, catalysts for getting me to develop my own. So it's really nice to, to have you on uh, as kind of one of the guests and bring things a bit kind of full circle, I guess. Oh my goodness, that's such a wonderful thing to hear. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll start it off by getting to know you. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and how your interest in nature and wildlife first started? All right. Um, well, I am an intersectional wildlife conservationist and trying to um, do that through different mediums, uh, through photojournalism as a photographer and uh, through science as an ecologist. Um, and a little bit more about me, I guess I'm, I'm Eurasian, so I'm European and Asian, I'm based in London and uh, I care really deeply about how biodiversity protection intertwines with empowerment of women and girls, as well as, um, you know, reaching or achieving racial justice across the globe. Um, and how did my love for nature kind of start? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Everyone always asks this question and I always have a very underwhelming answer. <laughs> um, I kind of just say that I was born with it. Because I grew up in Beijing, in China. I lived in the city and there was almost no nature there. There was no green spaces, there were very few birds. Um, and I really had very little access in, in terms of just geographically to natural spaces. Um, and I think it was that coupled with watching documentaries um, such as Dave Dattenborough and National Geographic, um, and the kind of the deprivation of, <laughs> of nature that kind of made me obsessed with it because then whenever I did encounter something, it made it all the more special. So even to this day, I am really excited by pigeons and crickets and things that are seemingly unremarkable to most people. Um, but I grew up not having on my doorstep. So I think that's where I came from. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great answer. I, I've loved hearing so many people's responses to that question because everyone's, I mean, there's a few themes, but everyone's got a different answer. Um, and I kind of, this is a nice segue talking about documentaries because um, I guess that's, uh, I think it was 2013. I, I want to say 2013. There was a BBC show that came out called Wild Burma. And that was quite a pivotal show for me, I think, because it um, kind of showed me firsthand that uh, conservation filmmaking and, and sort of expedition filmmaking and conservation photojournalism was like a viable career. So I think that's mm-hmm. probably one of the biggest shows that, or one of the biggest things that led me to where I am now, which is at yeah. Falmouth uh, studying marine and natural history photography, which I think you spoke to some second year, third year. Yes recently yeah um, yeah yeah my story suddenly blew up with all these like all the people I follow um talking about how amazing your talk was a few weeks ago <laughs> um but that that was a pretty pivotal film for me and it kind of is the first time I saw the illegal wildlife trade on uh, on tv you know in the in the public eye really um I mean you've taken some incredibly powerful photos of captive animals and it's to take these photos you've probably had to go to some quite emotional and potentially dangerous locations for any of my listeners because I know a lot of my listeners are MNHP students and you know wildlife photographers or wildlife just lovers in general um how if, if people want to explore working in this area how do you kind of find yourself doing that work it seems quite like a niche area of wildlife photography mm-hmm um, it is a very niche area, um, but it's a niche interest. So it's it's one of the one of the reasons why I do what I do. Really, is it's similar to you with your um, uh, the documentary that you were speaking about about Burma. I I think the documentary that kind of was a pivotal moment for me when I realized that this was a a career um, that I wanted to go into is when I watched Racing Extinction. Mm. Um, and that came out, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And uh, the illegal wildlife trade features quite heavily in that. And it's something that I've always cared about deeply, partly because I started my conservation journey, you know, volunteering in sub-Saharan Africa, where the poaching of rhinos and elephants is, a, is an enormous issue, but also because I have Chinese heritage and I grew up in China and um, and because I, I witnessed so much of this. And I also see that the way we are talking about it does not do in Chinese culture justice, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so it came from a place of, well, here's an issue that I care deeply about because I also care deeply about the, I guess, the intersection between conservation and animal rights and animal welfare, um, which I think is quite lacking in the conservation community. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's caring about individuals as much as caring about entire populations and species and, and how photography essentially is trying to connect with an individual animal um when you're taking a photograph of one um but yes back to the wildlife trade it's uh it came from a place of seeing that we were talking about an issue that is extremely important and urgent and um i guess problematic for conservation and for biodiversity 
but doing we were doing it in a way that I felt did not grant the cultures at question enough empathy um, and was kind of like the balance between calling in and calling out and it was more of a calling out rather than a calling in we weren't trying to include voices from the you know east asian or southeast asian community that engage in the kind of practices that facilitate and cause the demand for um, products for the illegal wildlife trade as mm -hmm. particularly with traditional chinese medicine i'm speaking about but um so it's all about trying to become more compassionate and empathetic with the different kinds of communities and different uh, ways of seeing the world and engaging with it um, because a lot of these things come from a place of tradition and the finger pointing that we're doing right now doesn't really lead to any solutions um, it just kind of leads to alienation and uh, an us versus them mentality when all we need in the environmentalist movement right now is collaboration and empathy and compassion um, but to get to the question <laughs> of how people can get involved, um, it's, it depends, you know, the illegal wildlife trade is a monster of an issue with what do you, it's the, there's the traditional medicine side, there's the pet trade side, there's the, um, the trade. I mean, there are so many different reasons why these, yeah, it's a hugely convoluted being, issue. Exactly. These products are being traded. Do you, are you interested in the crime side or in the trafficking and the biodiversity and the, you know, that's a, but, um, just find, find the element of it that you're interested in because you can't just kind of go blanket statement, illegal wildlife trade, because it's so complicated and, and complex, um, but finding something within that, a branch within that, and then just going and, um, I guess throwing yourself in the deep end, <laughs> de depending on the situation, of course. So uh, lots of my photos were taken in zoos. Lots of the yeah. photos that I have on my website, for example, that you can see are taken in zoos. And that's just an exploitation of wildlife. And it's not necessarily pertaining to illegal wildlife trade, but how did those animals get to where they were in those zoos across international borders? um and just you know unfortunately you have to you buy a ticket to one of these zoos and that's another whole other ethical question of you know participating in that but hopefully you can use what you collect or what kind of you know the, the information or the photographs that you gain from those experiences for a greater good um and a lot of the photos i've got were taken just at wildlife markets on the street then those aren't necessarily illegal either. Um, and, you know, reaching out to people. So after watching Racing Extinction, I reached out to the director, Luis Ahoyos, and um, was able to connect with him. It's the same with um, a lot of my other photographic experiences. I just cold emailed people <laughs> asking if I could help or, uh, how I could get involved or if I could just ask them questions or get advice about my career. There's no harm in asking. Yeah. 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 I think I've, I've definitely found that with this podcast, especially it's, uh, it's definitely boosted confidence in just cold emailing and like 99% of the time I've always, I mean, I've never got a negative response like twice. Mm -hmm. I've just got no response, but never a negative one. People will always, 
most likely just be happy to to hear from you Um, yeah exactly yeah I think that's a really good answer because it is just a massively complex issue and you can't really focus on all of it at once Um, yeah but that's pretty cool that you yeah you got in touch with the director um obviously people some of my listeners might know him as the director of the cove as well obviously another um film that i actually yeah recently discussed and the whole ethical issue um you've brought in actually quite a lot of subjects that we've covered in the entire podcast like whole episodes before into one question answer which is really cool i like <laughs> oh, that wow. Um, so yeah we've covered zoos we've covered um captive you know filming captive orcas obviously you've got to buy a ticket to like sea world to to actually get in and film the tanks um you know we've covered rhino poaching in uh kenya so yeah it's it kind of wrapped up in one big question um i think continuing the theme of communication because that's a really key thing that's you know that's what you do you you're a science communicator you use you know, photojournalist, but also a biologist. In this kind of age of misinformation, it's quite tricky to tell sometimes what is fact and what is fiction. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you're a great, you're an amazing science communicator, but you've kind of got a bit of advantage because you are a scientist. So you've got mm-hmm. education in reading scientific papers, scientific literature, and yeah. knowing how to break that down to a wider audience. The majority mm-hmm. of the general public probably don't read scientific papers on their day off um that's probably not something that they do so in your opinion what's the best way for like an average person to know if science is being communicated truthfully when reading say a newspaper article Mm -hmm. that's a great question um and i think it really i guess it just points to the failure of science communicators because (laughs) The general public shouldn't have to, if that makes sense. The, um, yeah. But that's a great point. I, I do say that, you know, in science communication, having what I call scientific literacy is a huge advantage because scientific, the like primary research papers are very difficult to understand if you don't understand all the jargon. Um, I think the best advice I can give to people is that when um, articles are citing research papers, when they say studies show or X person said, you know, follow up on it mm. if, if it doesn't feel right. I, <laughs> one of my professors, whenever we review uh, journal articles together, one of the questions he always asks is how did, how does it sit with your gut? <laughs> does it pass the gut test? Does your instinct, what do your instincts tell you? Um, so usually these um, newspapers, I suppose, will be will link the primary research paper that they, um, they cite. And it's a red flag if they don't. If you can't find the paper, it doesn't matter whether you can read it. <laughs> Um, but if you can't find the paper that they're citing, then it's a bit of a, a, a concern. Yeah. Um, no. And also just asking, uh, sharing that, sharing the information around asking, you know, see, reaching out to your, I guess, community online as well. I find that social media is such a, it's, it can be to your detriment, but also really positive. And there have been times where I've reached out to 
my community on Instagram, for example, and said, oh, does, can anybody tell me more about a certain subject? Mm. And I'll get a wonderful response from people um, and have really great discussions. So, yeah, yeah I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, a, a lot of the discussions that I've had with people, with scientists and people who are in very, very different fields uh, from me have been sparked through social media. So it's definitely a powerful communication tool, but also one that we've just got to be wary of because a lot of you know, graphics and stats and figures, you know, just because it's on Instagram doesn't mean it's true. I think is exactly. something that a lot of people forget sometimes, especially with scientific literature. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just an important topic to cover. And I wanted to get your perspective as a scientist on it um, mm. because it is quite tricky to navigate. But to kind of segue into something that does tap more into your scientific uh, mind, you're a member of the Youth Council, uh, Reserva, the Youth Council, mm -hmm. Youth Land Trust. There we go. Yes. You're a member of the Youth Council for Reserva, the Youth Land Trust. That's what I'm supposed to be reading. Um, can you <laughs> kind of break down what that organisation does, why you're yeah. part of it, how can people get involved, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So Reserva is a fantastic organization that I am so proud to be a part of and I could not give high enough praise <laughs> to this organization. Um, we are a little group of people, not so little actually, not anymore, um, but it's mostly youth run, uh, which is people under 30. And we are endeavoring to create the world's first entirely youth-funded nature reserve in the Ecuadorian Chocó rainforest, um, which, so the organization is trying to show that youth have power. And we've seen that power in the climate movement. We've seen the, the representation and the force of nature that is the that are the youth voices that are driving the climate movement. Um, but we kind of want to bring that into the biodiversity protection and, you know, environmentalism outside of like the nature focused side of environmentalism and show that youth do have power. And it's a wonderful way to empower young people and to show them that they can have tangible change for nature because so many of these issues it's how can i help what can i do beyond just you know using a metal straw instead of a plastic straw and recycling and, and etc what can i do that will actually help with these issues these enormous seeming issues on the other side of the planet quite often um and this is why i find reserva so wonderful because we are raising money to protect a plot of land that we have been to, that we have seen, that we have photographed, and we're working with local Ecuadorian partners. Um, and we're also working with the local indigenous communities. And it's a really well-rounded, it's not just the nature side, it's also supporting the local community, making sure that um, surrounding communities have um, alternative sources of income through sustainable farming practices. Um, and my, one of my favorite things about the organization is that we have this campaign called the One Million Letters Campaign, which is essentially um, making sure that we can include the voices of young people all over the planet that may not necessarily have the leverage or the 
privilege to be able to raise funding um, and to make sure that they can contribute to this cause as well. So any person under the age of 30, I believe, that writes a letter to Reserva saying why we need to protect nature and why they love nature, um, we receive a letter and we donate on their behalf $3 towards protecting the rainforest in, in the Choco and Ecuador. So people who may not necessarily have the, the funds to set aside that kind of money, we can do so on their behalf and they can still make a contribution to, to protecting nature. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. I think it's, um, I definitely, it's definitely on the, I think you're, do you do um, like media and kind of sort of outreach for them? Which yeah. is, I think is definitely um, shows the the power of the sort of the pe the many people working on media and outreach for them because you see a lot from them, and yeah, you you guys do amazing work. And um, we've actually just picked up uh, literally like five minutes before I sent you the link. I got an email through um, on the Past the Mic Climate email account. Um, and I think we're hopefully going to do something. Um, I got a message about, about Reserva this morning from someone going, are they a legit organization and are they, you know, good to, to respond to? Um, so that's really exciting to, to think about what we can do in the future. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's important to, I always try and have that sense of talking, asking my guests what pe my listeners can do because, you know, I, I don't, know kind of how many people really listen to the podcast but I know it has it definitely has a fairly solid audience and mm -hmm. people do off, always go you know what can we do there's there's a lot of people who just talk to me either online or in my daily life you know friends that I meet who go yeah what what can I do beyond as you said swapping a straw or buying a reusable coffee cup you know a lot of people yeah. are kind of lost of what to do so campaigns like this really are a great way to get involved on the ground floor and kind of um yeah help out or f feel like you're really doing something yeah yeah for sure and with reserva there's so many opportunities if you want to get involved with the organizational side reach out to the organization and just ask, yeah again ask yeah. there's no harm in asking what they can do but then also you know of course fundraising is is enormously important yeah, yeah for sure um now this is a, another sort of big topic but we've managed to kind of quite succinctly break down these huge issues into quite nice well-rounded answers um which again i think speaks loads to your uh, ability as a communicator um but i i've spoken to a few guests before about the various uh, lack of diversity in different wildlife related industries photography mm -hmm. and, and videography i think is a big one I was shocked to kind of learn that even in 2021, um, I think it was actually a post that Girls Who Click shared on Instagram, um, that the huge BBC show Winterwatch didn't have a single camera woman on their production team this year, which I think is crazy because there's so many talented camera women out there, um, especially in the UK that they could have used so many, a lot of who I know uh, personally and, I mean, it, it's kind of obviously that's just one show, you know, but I think it's the wild, wildlife industries have been historically quite undiverse. I think um, there's definitely 
an issue there, especially in the filmmaking sector and the sort of BBC side of things. Uh, I think that's changing a bit, but probably not enough. Um, you're an ambassador for the brilliant organisation Girls Who Click, who do some amazing work to try and change this. Could you talk about some barriers to women becoming photographers and camera operators and maybe break down some of the work that Girls Who Click is doing? Sure. Um, oof, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> that, that, that was a lot. That was a very loaded question. Yeah. I'm sorry, but no, I know no, no, you're but one of the best people to talk about you know to ask about this it's it, you're you're right to ask it though um and it's true it's it's kind of it's not necessarily that there's really overt forms of discrimination against women in the community and it's not that you know there's a there's the rampant misogyny or sexism it's just it's mostly the systemic issues that are built into the patriarchal society that we live in mm. um and within the wildlife and i guess the photography and camera operating world in particular um it is yeah it's sorry <laughs> it's at least for me i found i would first of all it's the lack of representation mm that's one that's one challenge i'm just gonna go chronologically from from how i how i started and and i guess what the barriers were and when you, you don't have representation you don't even realize that that's the case if that makes sense you don't know what it feels like not to have representation it's just that when you do eventually stumble upon representation it's this overwhelming feeling of oh my gosh i feel seen i feel wow, that's, that's a possibility for me. And I didn't even realize that I was missing out on this feeling before, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's, I kind of like for the first uh, few months, I, that I, when I started in photography and again, I, I only, st I started by stumbling upon this discipline. I, I didn't really know uh, that, you know, photojournalism was a career and I didn't know how to get into it. I just kind of very, I was very lucky and I, met the right people at the right time. Um, but I didn't know much about the industry, so I didn't know who to look up to. And for the longest time, I didn't know any women photographers to look up to, let alone women of color. Even now, there are so few women of color to look up to. And it's really difficult because not only do you, you don't see yourself represented or welcome in the community, um, but there's also the whole element of you, you kind of want to see how they got to where they were from where they are now. And it's a lot more difficult um, when the people don't look like you, when they don't have to face the same, yeah, underlying covert forms of discrimination, um, both racially and th um, through gender. And, um, and also when it comes to like nationality, lots of, Lots of photographers and camera operators are from North America and Western Europe. Um, and as someone who kind of straddles this like in-between zone, because I'm not quite British Asian and I'm not Asian American, but I'm not 
Asian either. <laughs> I'm yeah. like in the middle of everything in terms of like cultural and national identity. It's kind of hard to find, you know, how, oh, how am I supposed to break into this? Is where, which community do I go to? How do I find someone who can help me figure out what to do? Um, so representation is a really one big barrier. And then another one is just you know, I have always, almost always been the only woman on a given expedition. And that is an alienating feeling. And it is not a comfortable one <laughs> um, at certain times. And so I can see how that can be quite discouraging for a lot of people. It definitely was a concern for me. And it definitely, again, it's one of those things where you don't realize how wonderful it is to have someone else like you on the team until you have it. Um, and you just feel quite, yes, alienated. And it's, in certain cases, also being a woman, unsafe. And that's something we absolutely must address. You know, it's, it's when it comes to traveling um, on your own with lots of heavy equipment that is often quite expensive, or yeah, just being in certain places where safety as a woman may not necessarily be as easily accessible as safety for a man um, and not having the proper measures in place to support that kind of safety, the safety concerns required for that. Um, I think Women Photograph shared something uh, late last year about how one of their partner, one of their photographers that's part of the collective, they were asking what uh, security measures were in place to protect the journalist, the, the photojournalist. Um, and, and the, I guess the news agency replied saying, you know, it's well, we're not interested in working with you any longer because you're demanding all these extra safety concerns. Um, but that's another barrier. Yeah. And then also there's um, just, you know, not being taken as seriously, being patronized, being mansplained, <laughs> being doubted. You know, there's no one is underestimated like a young woman. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. 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 I'm really. Um, yeah, that was a great answer because I'm, I'm really try and get as many different perspectives on the podcast as I possibly can, because I am mm -hmm. like the that there's no way I could just sit here and talk on my own for half an hour about my experiences <laughs> because I don't really have any experiences. I'm a white male. I'm privileged. I'm, you know, in, in that I have varying degrees of privilege and especially in the industry that I potentially want to explore in the future. And I've, you know, some of my dedicated listeners might be bored of me saying this, but it, it's important to say, because I've said it before, it was only like maybe two and a half, three years ago when I looked at my bookshelf of books on, you know, Blue Planet 2 and um, autobiographies of filmmakers and photographers and realized that everyone looked like me. They were all white men. There was, there was like, I think maybe that, that wild Burma um, in 2013, that was the first time I'd seen a woman camera operator and that was Justine Evans so it's not, not not a woman of color and yeah I think that when I sat down over um a voice call last year for the podcast with Gunjan Menon who also works with Girls Who Click that was the first mm -hmm. time I'd 
properly properly had a conversation with a woman of color who worked in the industry that I wanted to go into and that's in 2020 that was that's just now looking back on it it seems so crazy to me so yeah I'm really happy that not happy because it's that's the wrong word because it, they, they, no, but I, <laughs> you know what I mean it's it's yeah. important it's really important to get these to have these conversations and get these things on yeah. any platforms that we can um yeah and it's important that we have people like you who are you know passing the mic yeah yeah passing the mic is very important I think it's um <laughs> having having done this whole yeah been been a small a very very small part of this initiative lately it's shown me definitely the the massive importance of that action Mm -hmm. um i mean i think we've kind of covered all the big important issues that i want to talk about so we can kind of move on to something a little more positive which is (laughs) reading and also looking into different forms of communication is is books i have a scarily large number of books if you can see my listeners won't see but you can see that whole top shelf behind me is i haven't read yet that I haven't started oh my goodness. but there's like 22 on there um I've been asking all my guests this recently and it is an impossible question so I'm really sorry but if you had to recommend one nature or wildlife or science themed book that you think my listeners should read what would it be and why oh that's a good oh gosh <laughs> that's like a that's, that's very hard it's it's a loaded question um I have can I give you two books? Yes. Yeah, sure. Two books. Okay. They're they I think both of them are absolutely essential reading and they completely change the way I see the world. Um so the first is Braiding Sweetgrass by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, which is a beautifully written book. Um Robin, she's a, a member of the po- poet Oh gosh, sorry. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of, of this. But the Poeta to me, um, Indigenous Nation. No, what is it? Powatami. Oh my gosh. Just just edit that out. I can't remember. I think it's Potawatomi. Potawatomi. I can't. I am slightly dyslexic. So that's. Okay. <laughs> I, I think so. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it actually. Bear with me. Oh, okay. But, you've got it let's just let's just pull this down um because yeah it's in it's important to to get this right um yeah potawatomi nation potawatomi there we go so we can here so robin is part of the oh my gosh dyslexia brain potawatomi nation Okay, so Robin is part of the Potawatomi Nation um, in the, U- the U.S. Um, she's an indigenous woman, but she's also a biologist, and she has combined. She she has written this beautiful book about how we need to value indigenous wisdom as well as just scientific knowledge, and how we can combine the two forms of of thinking and knowing um, to improve our relationship with the natural world and foster this relationship of reciprocity rather than what is we currently have is the you know extractive relationship that we have with nature um so that is an absolutely essential book it's so beautiful and it's really humbling as well as like mm. as, as a species 
um, and also as a culture, as a society, because you kind of realize, oh, well, Western society, what on earth have we been doing? <laughs> um, and then the second book that I think is also absolutely phenomenal, it's called Entangled Life by uh, Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, and it's all about fungi. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I've, all... I've, I've got to get my hands on that. I've been looking at it yes. for so long. It's, it yes. looks amazing. It's phenomenal. It's all about fungi and it will really make you reevaluate how you see yourself as an individual, as a species, as a living thing on this planet. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. So I think those are my two recommendations. I mean, I'm glad you, I'm really glad you brought up Braiding Sweetgrass because it means that I only have to buy one book instead of two. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm definitely going to get my hands on that if I can. But yeah, Braiding Sweetgrass, absolutely. It, it's, I'm not, I'm not really religious in any way, but it's, so it's kind of like my Bible, I guess you could say. I, I keep it on my bedside table and I just like, will flick through it and read a couple of chapters every now and then or like dip oh, really? in and out and grab grab quotes for like captions and different things like that and it's yeah. yeah it's a it's an incredible just thing to to have and to reference you know for, for yeah. forever really it's a it's an amazing book um absolutely and so, it's it's one of those oh sorry no 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 go on go on it's, it's one of those books um and both of these books are the same it's you're not just learning something from it you're changing the like the architecture of your thoughts mm. so i think yeah. it's a and they're both beautifully written as well yeah it's uh that it took me a while to get through braiding sweetgrass i'm not gonna lie I'm, I'm a fast reader but it i just wanted to any book like this i think um the last book that i read before it that i could say was kind of similar in the the reading pace was um why i'm no longer talking to white people about race it's oh, the kind, yeah. of, kind of books that you want to you want to take your time you want to read kind of a chapter and then leave it a week or two and like digest and then you want to read a few more you know chapters and I don't know, yeah. another 100 pages or something and just kind of chill out a bit with it and and really take all take it all in and really make sure you understand what it's saying because a, a lot yeah. of people will just skim through books and I think that's yeah. definitely an important one to to stay on um yeah. If you found this question, that question hard to, to answer, you're not going to like this because <laughs> I, try and, I try and finish off every episode with a quick fire round. Okay. So, um, it's, I, I actually know the answer to the first question already because I, when I'm writing these questions, I saw it on your Instagram. So <laughs> I know that this is not going to be a quick fire answer and that's fine. You can take as long as you need for this one. Uh, but first off, uh, what's your favorite animal? Oh, <laughs> this is gonna be quick, is it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh, everyone always asks me this, and I never have a good answer. I can't possibly choose because, um, especially when when you study wildlife and when you study ecology. So I don't necessarily mm. study animals in particular, but I and I study the entire ecosystem, and I study how everything is connected and how they all rely on each other and collaborate and compete and it's so beautiful um and so i can't really possibly choose one but i will say that uh 
I do have an affinity towards parrots, but there are several hundred species of parrots and, yeah. <laughs> and, I can't, and I can't even choose. I mean, I love, I love cats. So like all the wild cats, the whole yeah. Philidae family. And I love parrots. So <laughs> they're two very different things. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, I, I, I've said this analogy a lot because it's just the easiest one to say, but asking someone like me and you who just has devoted a, a huge portion of their life to just loving biodiversity, what their favorite animal is, is like asking a mother what their favorite child is. It's just an unfair exactly. question. You can't exactly. pick. Or like asking a gourmet what their favorite food is. It's just not going to yeah. work. Mean. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I completely agree. Um, where is a place that you like to go and kind of connect with nature? Like the, the first place that springs to mind that you feel most at home outdoors? The jungle. Um, yeah. But I can't get there right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's been a yeah. common theme. Um, yeah. I've spoken to a huge number of people who their their natural place their happy place is hundreds if not thousands of miles away yeah. um, and that's the nature of this possible? yeah these these crazy i don't know Time. however long it's been um, yeah. i've i've stopped counting the months <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah hopefully hopefully you can get back out there soon yes oh the tropical rainforest is my is my home wait are you um your current degree is tropical forest ecology is that right yes exactly yeah. so yeah definitely i i would not i'd be like slightly disappointed if you said anything else except tropical <laughs> like you dedicated yeah. a huge portion of your life to this um <laughs> do you have a conservation hero oh that's a good question i don't i don't i um it's quite funny that actually i don't i've never thought mm. about that um I try not to put, I try not to idolize people um, or one, any one individual because having been on the other side, having been, having worked with conservationists, it's never just one person. It's never the poster child. It's always a, an enormous team effort. It's the same with scientists. Sure, there's that one person who's the, the principal author of a paper, for example, but there's an entire team of people um, behind that so I don't I don't think I have a conservation hero that's no that's a great answer I think it's yeah I've I, I put this in like right in episode one because it's kind of I just wanted to I was interested to hear people's inspirations and it kind of wraps up the whole kind of episode it kind of brackets it with the first question but yeah. at the same time I totally agree that we shouldn't put a however awesome individuals might be we shouldn't put anyone on a pedestal um yeah. i've learned that more you know quite quite strongly this last year especially in in the current movements that i'm working in um and how they started but that's that's a whole other yeah. podcast and maybe a <laughs> private discussion with so many people um but uh yeah la last off how do you take your coffee i don't drink coffee <laughs> brilliant that's like i think you're the <laughs> fifth, fifth person i've lost count there's, there's actually oh a surprisingly large amount of people since the podcast started who just go nope i don't i don't drink it is there a, a reason oh, why God. um no it's just i'm such a hyperactive person um you can you know you can ask any 
of my friends. I'm always this like ball of energy. And then you put me outside in nature and it's just, you know, I, my energy levels shoot off the roof and I'm just really enthusiastic about everything all the time. And so I feel like coffee would just drive me over. Just, I would be bouncing off the walls, but I, it's, I feel like coffee, I have, I've had, you know, espressos every now and then because I, um, my family are based in Italy. So you, you have your coffee after, after your food. Um, so I enjoy it more for taste reasons um, yeah. rather than I feel a lot of people drink coffee out of necessity or just habit. So. Yeah, no, it's been, it's always interesting. I think that that question kind of breaks everyone down to just their raw human form. It's just like, to, yeah. you know, it's, it's coffee is like a universal thing now. And yeah. you you can definitely tell the different fields that my guests work in. If I if that was if I didn't introduce anyone, and I just said what kind of coffee did you drink, I could probably guess what field they work in now. Because oh people, really? I reckon because the people I've spoken to who are like have experience in field research always go for black coffee because that's what you get in the middle of the jungle is just yeah. instant black coffee. That's Whereas so true. <laughs> more like office jobs or who live in the city they're used to like some nice lattes and some cappuccinos so they'll say those things whereas yeah scientists always automatically especially field researchers just go black coffee instantly Um, and yeah you're the you're the second person to say i think who is it who's uh karina reyes i spoke to you recently also yeah. yeah she also said um that she doesn't drink coffee for those exact reasons which is quite interesting. Oh, amazing. That's um, amazing. So you've got a... I've never a, spoken to her, but we chat a lot online. So now I know that we'll get along swimming. Yeah, <laughs> you've got a, a kindred spirit in not drinking coffee for enthusiastic nature reasons. <laughs> I mean, that's that was... I, I love when quickfire rounds just kind of, I don't know, pinball off into a, a different topic. But um, yeah, that's kind of it, really. I just wanted to say finish off by saying thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about some really important issues and yeah I'm really looking forward to seeing what what more work you do with all these amazing groups and on your own in the future. Thank you so much for having me and for asking fantastic questions. Thanks again so much to Selena for taking the time to speak to me. All the links to her social media and website will be linked in the episode description as ever. So who are Blackfin Coffee and why am I featuring them? You can find out all about my story with this brilliant company by going to my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. But for now, the most important thing you at home need to know is that they do incredible work to help the southern resident orca, an endangered group of killer whales with a population of just 74 individuals. Blackfin have an ongoing partnership with the PNW Protectors, a non-profit organisation dedicated to protecting the Salish Sea and the Southern Resident Orca through education and public engagement. You can find out more about the details of this particular coffee, which comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, through the link in the episode description. If you feel like you've learnt anything of value from the podcast, please consider supporting me through a one-off donation on Ko-fi. This means I can buy ethically sourced coffee to feature, expand my storytelling toolkit, and support local and indigenous coffee growing companies and any contributors to the podcast. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening 
I've been your host George Stephen Jones and this is Coffee with Conservationists. Thank you.